0: In the beautiful West Seventh neighborhood of Saint Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. It is great to be with you guys this morning. Thank you all for braving the cold. I I keep getting surprised by these like little fluxes of like it's 40 degrees, it's the springtime, it's great, and then you wake up on a morning like this, it's like negative eight. Stay inside. <laughs> So I'm happy to see all of you out here. I wasn't sure how many would come. For those of you at home, I'm glad that you're warm. (laughs) That is fine too. Um, Yeah, it's great to be with you all. So around the beginning of the year, we started working our way through the book of Hebrews together. And this week we've made it to chapter four. And since Hebrews is a letter that builds upon itself, it's probably helpful to take a moment and look back at what we've covered so far. As Jordan mentioned over these last few weeks, the book of Hebrews is primarily written to first-century Jewish Christians, mainly focused in Jerusalem. These early Christians were kind of up against the wall. As although the initial wave of Christianity had spread amongst the Jewish people and in Jerusalem, it began to taper off even as Christianity exploded across the rest of the world. The audience of the book of Hebrews now faced immense societal pressure from both the occupying Romans and from the Jewish religious elite to abandon following Jesus as the Messiah and conform to either faction's beliefs. Not to mention kind of the societal pressure they would have from unconverted family members as well. These early Jewish Christians were beginning to stare down a similar circumstance to that of their forefathers many generations before, who stood on the very edge of the promised land, but also on the precipice of disobedience, as their faith in God's providence faltered in the face of the enormity of the task before them. So too were these early Christians on the path to a far greater promised land in Christ, yet risked faltering due to the pressures closing in on them. This is what the author of Hebrews, whoever they might be, is writing to address. And this is important to remember, that this letter is first and foremost written to first century Jewish Christians, mostly in Jerusalem. It is written to address their questions and sell them on Jesus in a way that is specifically relevant to them. That's not to say that it's not extremely useful to us as well, but trying to see through the eyes of the initial recipients will help us make sense of kind of the obscure or vague references, or in the case of today's passage, why half of the passage is dedicated to an argument uh, for a position that the church has taken for granted for about 2,000 years. But we'll get there soon. First, just a little bit more recap. The first couple chapters lay out, as N.T. Wright puts it, the ultimacy of Jesus. He is the prophet through which God declared his final word, the priest who accomplished a perfect work of purification, and the king who sits enthroned beside the majesty of God. This is a guiding theme expanded on throughout the letter. The author begins by arguing for the ultimacy of Jesus through a somewhat obscure discussion on, or on Jesus being greater than angels. That's not my sermon, thankfully. I don't have to wade through it. But for the purpose, uh, for our purposes, it intends to lead the first-century Jewish Christians to understand that Jesus is far superior to Moses, and that their scriptures, our Old Testament, anticipated an even greater revelation from God Himself that had just come to pass in their recent history. Having established this. And reaching last week's sermon on chapter 3, the author warns the audience to avoid the mistakes of the past generation, to avoid the unbelief that had kept them from the promised land. If Jesus really was the ultimate arrival of God and his plans and purposes in the world, then do not turn away from him lest you make the same mistake as those who were ready to enter the promised land. That brings us to our chapter today, chapter 4, which initially directly carries on the argument from chapter 3. But instead of focusing on the warning of uh, the people to not forsake Jesus, it focuses on showing that his invitation into his rest, which we'll define better shortly, still stands. So we'll start working through chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and then go on from there. So the beginning of chapter 4, here's where we'll start. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to fall short of it. For we have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have obeyed entered that rest, just as God has said. So I declare, on my oath, in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. And yet, this work had been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere it is spoken that on the seventh day, in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again, the passage above says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest... And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again, or God again set a certain day calling it today. This, is, or this he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If anyone enters, God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter this rest so no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. As I mentioned before, at a 10,000 foot view of this passage, it is really an argument that God's offer through Christ to follow him into obedience and rest, definition pending, is still on the table, which to those of us in modern day Christianity probably sounds a little bit redundant. Like, of course it is. The church has been predicated on believing that you can come to Jesus for the last 2,000 years. Like, of course it is. But at the time, for the audience of the book of Hebrews, that hadn't been fully ironed out yet. There were more variables at play. They were potentially unsure of what God was working towards at that point. Was it tied up in the land and in Israel, the nation being restored, or was it something different and bigger? And as stated before, were they able to still join into whatever that thing is that God is now doing? The author then leads with the conclusion in the first couple verses of chapter four, saying, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you are found to have fallen short of it. For we have also had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. And again, the author reiterates the warning from before, not to be like the unfaithful generation while also shifting the focus to the rest that is promised to the faithful. Just as the ancient Israelites had, cho- or had the choice between trusting God and what he was doing at the cusp of Canaan, so now the audience has heard Jesus' work, his life, death, resurrection, and call to follow him. They have received good news. Now the author expounds upon what is in store for those who believe and follow it. Starting in verse 3. Now we have believed and entered that rest, just as God said, or, or sorry. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said. So I declare on my oath in anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again is or set a certain day, calling it today. That or this is what or this he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. To be perfectly honest, on first reading, at least to me these verses seem kind of like a mess. Like, this is the moment that everyone, including myself, if I was hearing someone else preach this, all of our eyes glaze over and we just kind of wait for the next point, like, oh my gosh, just finish that and we'll get to the good stuff later. But... This does follow an argument of sorts as the author cites Psalm 95.11, Genesis 2.2, and Psalm 95.7 to try and outline the big picture concept of what the rest that they're talking about is and if the audience can still participate in it. Streamlined, it is effectively that since uh, there were those who did not enter into God's rest, according to Psalm 95.11, there were those who did or at least could have, Genesis 2.2 is used to establish, finally, what this rest is that we're talking about. It's not the promise of Canaan or the ties to an ancestral land that could provide refuge from the Romans. It's not the preservation or deliverance of a distinct Jewish nation. It's not even simply peace or rest from the toils of this life. It is the rest mentioned in Genesis 2.2, the rest that God entered into. Again, it's not like this rest is God taking a cosmic nap. He is clearly still active in creation. So this rest, simply put, is everything the way it should be or as God intended. The offer of rest is that of offering entrance into both the future in which God has fully made things right and a present in which we can experience some of that now including having our relationship with God put right and working with him to bring the world into closer alignment with his will and rest. Finally, the author mentions or the author cites Psalm 95:7 to show the audience that the offer of entering into this rest still stands by mentioning how David uh, was offered it, or how it was offered to David if he were to follow God. If it was offered to David in a present tense, who lived at the height of Israel's life in the promised land, clearly the offer transcends both the promised land and that it is still on the table regardless of whatever previous failures had occurred. Verses 8 and 9 affirm and sum this up. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works and if God did, or just as God did from His, let us therefore make every effort to enter into His rest, so no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The author makes clear that the rest that they're talking about truly came, or if the rest that they're talking about truly came when Joshua took the promised land, then God would not have kept on about it afterward. And that what he's restoring isn't focused on the land, but the fullness of his vision for the world. There's a better thing coming that they can take part in that will ultimately rectify and bring justice to the pressure and persecution that those first century Christians faced a time when they can unreservedly praise God for the restoration that he has brought to themselves and to the world. So don't miss out on it, the author shouts again. Let's take a time out from untangling kind of all of this that the author has had to say, because the author has, at this point, almost broken the fourth wall and is staring right at us, the Christians of subsequent generations. They're making clear that this promise of rest, God making right our relationship with him and bringing the world into line with his will, is offered to us as well. Even as we face hardship and pressure from our world, whatever the source may be, and it may feel no longer socially advantageous for us to remain as followers of Christ, the author of Hebrews practically yells at us, keep your eyes on what's coming. Keep your eyes on what God is doing in you right now and in your world. Our lives are but a blip. We are on the cusp of a far greater promised land. We can experience a taste of it even now. So, don't fall into disobedience or turn from following Jesus now that you're this close. Don't repeat the tragedies of the past. This is all a theme we will return to shortly. But for now, let's go on to verses 12 and 13. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from from God's sight." Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, we have to be careful here because it would be easy for us to superimpose our shorthand onto this passage's meaning for the Word of God. For us, the Word of God is often synonymous with scriptures, the Bible. And that's not exactly wrong, but it's more of a slice of a larger whole, Uh, to make this simply an aside about the importance of Scripture undercuts the full meaning of the argument that the author is intending. For the author of this passage, the word of God is his judgment, as in, broadly, the decisions he makes. It is his will enacted. We do not have a God that has to wage war across the cosmos, but simply speaks, and it is so." He spoke to the prophets and the apostles to reveal Himself and His intentions, but even more so, came to Earth to reveal so Himself. He is not done speaking and therefore acting, as He is bringing about His will and ultimately bring about the rest discussed earlier. As another example, John one sums some of this up in saying, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning." Through all things he or through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made in him was life the life that was the light of all mankind and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and skipping a few verses the verse or the word became flesh and made it his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth this broader understanding of the Word of God is what we are talking about here. So going back to verse 13, we see that the Word of God is his decision-making, judgment, will enacted, etc., that it is alive and active. Again, the rest that he has promised is not lost, and his activity in the world has not ceased. The author goes on to say that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, it penetrates and even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation could be hidden but from God's sight, everything uncovered and laid bare before his eyes, or of his eyes, of him who must or we must give account. Now keep in mind, in the previous verse, verse 12, it was a final warning not to perish in disobedience. Verse 13 effectively says, because God's judgment will be perfect. He will discern the intentions and motivations of everyone unfailingly. Verse 13's depiction of his word as a sword gives readers of the day a mental picture of justice, that God's judgment will be just. But further, that it will cut deep further than the surface level and what we can externally portray, perhaps deeper than we can even properly and reliably discern ourselves. When the author talks about the word dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, they are trying to communicate that it can divide what we would otherwise think is indivisible. Ultimately, as the end of the verse says, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give account. In the end... When the rest that the author has been talking about is fully realized, there are no more games, no more sleights of hand. God will justly pass judgment on all things. So, take a step back again. To summarize the author's main thrusts to this point, before we move on to the the final section, they are to see that the rest is now fully revealed and offered to the reader. To follow Jesus and trust God so you do not falter as those before did and that they can enter their rest because the judgment of God is perfect and he will ultimately pass it on all things. That's kind of terrifying. Granted, the ability to enter the rest described earlier is surely encouraging, but countless people from before had failed seemingly on the edge of success. God's judgment will be perfect and seemingly severe, if just. As those early Christians felt the pressure surrounding them and the easy off-ramps where it would have been societally beneficial for them to have just given up following Jesus, would they be able to hold up? Tell me if you've heard this one before. It almost seems like they couldn't do it themselves, which is exactly what verses 14 through 16 are about. But first, a really quick side note, just kind of almost a footnote, if you will. There's been a lot of discussion over the years about what the gospel, the good news of Jesus is. I would suggest in its biggest form that it is God has paved a way and is accomplishing the project of reconciling all things to himself, culminating in the rest that we've talked about today, where all things are as, they, as he meant them to be. A primary aspect of this good news, though, is that God reconciles humans to himself. And verses 14 through 16 are a tremendous summary of this. So finally at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we have, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne, our God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the good news of how we are reconciled to God. We can remain faithful followers of Jesus because he, the great high priest, performed the perfect sacrifice for his people through his death and resurrection. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father as our advocate. He says to those that follow him, they're with me, they're covered by what I have done. Now it's worth backing up a moment to inspect closer the picture that the author is giving to us. He gives us an image of approaching God's throne, which symbolized a couple of important things. First, on a base layer, a king's throne not only signifies that they, were, that they ruled, but also that they were the judge. In the ancient world, a king's judgment was not guaranteed to be just or certainly gracious. It was with great trepidation that the common folk po- approached the power and judgment of the king. But further, it would have been known to the readers of this letter that the Ark of the Covenant represented God's throne in their past. it was kept in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and the high priest only entered that area once a year to sprinkle bull's blood from a sacrifice on the ark to atone for the people's sins. But even the high priest was forced to burn incense to cloud out the room so they couldn't see God's judgment seat. Now contrast that image with the one we have in verses 14 through 16. Jesus, the great high priest who made the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, has entered the true Holy of Holies as our advocate. Not only that, but he beckons his followers. The imperfect definitely would be dead if we touched the Ark of the Covenant people to approach the throne. Not to be destroyed, but shown grace. Not in fear, but in confidence that he covers us with his sacrifice so long as we follow him. He has experienced everything we have and more. He is our advocate, not contemptuously, but in compassion and empathy. And here's the beauty of it. It's not simply a future tense thing. We don't have to wait until the fully realized rest from before to be embraced by the grace of God. In fact, we can't wait that long. Jesus' followers throughout the century have been called to approach the throne of grace today, trusting that Jesus' sacrifice is what makes us right with God, taking up their cross and following him as as his disciple. And that's where the passage for today ends, although the idea of Jesus as a high priest will continue on into next week. But let's reflect for a moment on today's passage uh, and what that might mean for us today. While it was often couched in terms and illustrations not readily available to us in the modern day, it should be clear the timeless message that it portrays. We, like the first century Jewish Christians, are offered the opportunity to enter into God's rest, both in the present, today, and as it is ultimately fulfilled in the future. This rest Uh, being the entrance into both a future in which God has made all things right and a present in which we can experience some of that now. As we face a bizarre world filled with pressures to reject Jesus or part of what he calls his followers to do, we can be encouraged that it won't always be that way. Even more encouraging is knowing that we ourselves are being conformed into his likeness at this moment, as well as aspects of our world as a taste of that ultimate rest the future is not bleak, it is full of hope. Are not ultimate destruction, but rejuvenation, and this process has already begun. But in order to participate in this rest, we must trust God and follow Jesus. Those who don't or who do not and walk in disobedience and reject God's call will not enter his rest, just as the Israelites on the border of Canaan missed the boat. Because God's will, his perfect discernment and judgment, which brings about that ultimate fulfillment of his rest, will not allow entrance to those who have rejected obedience and following Christ. Even so, we do not need to fear if we follow Christ. He is the great high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice and now advocates for us. But he also understands where you are, what your struggles and hardships are, questions and doubts joys, and passions. He calls us to approach God with the promise that we will be shown grace. If Jesus hasn't been a part of your life or if you've kept him at arm's length, I'd encourage you to talk to him about that and listen to the call that he has given today. Talk with him about the rest he offers you, your need for his sacrifice and your willingness to follow him. And then follow him. Read the books of the Bible that contain his words. Talk to people who are following him, too. For those of us who are already on the path of following Jesus, we can be encouraged that God looks upon our imperfect pilgrimage with grace and the desire to live with us intimately. There's an open invitation to approach him and be received with understanding and grace. And that relationship is what's going to keep us going no matter what we face until we enter into that ultimate rest. Let's pray together. Father God, you have done great things in our lives, in our world. You have had a great plan of salvation and bringing your rest, everything into alignment with your will from the beginning. God, give us encouragement as sometimes it is easy to lose sight that that's coming, and that we can see it today, too. When we feel the pressures of our world, the discouragement of sin still permeating every aspect of what we see, let us, instead of pushing you away, run to you. Run to your throne of grace and be accepted in your warm embrace. We thank you for this time together in your name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West Seventh Community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at CapitalCitySt.Paul.com.